0: How's it going, everybody? Dan Fagelli here at Sentient Potential. I'm lucky enough to be speaking with John Danaher, who's a uh, philosophy PhD. He's now a lecturer in law at Keele University in the UK. and He's also a relatively prolific writer on the ethical considerations of human enhancement. John, how are you?
1: I'm pretty good. How are you?
0: I'm doing very well. And I, uh, I had mentioned when we were kind of off cam here a second ago that I had initially become introduced to your work through your blog, which was linked up at the IEET website, Um, And I I saw a lot of kind of your uh, just ethical musings and also study of other people taking these matters seriously. Um, I I wanted to start off with, just to kind of frame the conversation before we get a little bit more speculative, um, what you consider at present to be some of the the more prominent ethical considerations around human enhancement now. So I think a lot of people are, you know, whether, depending on how uh, pessimistic or optimistic they are, I suppose, in terms of uh, technology timelines, um, many people, I think, still consider the human enhancement concerns to be relatively far off, and I know that there's a lot happening now that's, that's of some value. So I wanted you to maybe be able to kind of explore some of the ethical considerations around human enhancement that you think are serious even at present.
1: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, in my personal work, obviously the, the enhancement debate has been around for quite a while, and uh, there are fairly well in, entrenched views and fairly standard lines of arguments that are trotted out by uh, respective sides in that debate. I suppose my interest is uh, in trying to find somewhat uh, novel areas for exploring the enhancement debate. So uh, two things that I've looked at practically in terms of things that might have uh, practical application uh, is enhancement in um, uh, amongst the use of cognitive enhancers amongst students in universities and the regulation of that. I mean, lots of other people have discussed that, too. I wouldn't claim it's incredibly novel, but it seems to be uh, an area which is um, becoming more, more pressing over time. And also, uh, enhancement of individuals who are involved in legal trials. So, particularly looking at a proposal mooted a couple of years ago by a pair of Dutch um, philosophers and, and uh, lawyers, Uh, on the enhancement of eyewitnesses in in the legal trial. So that's one area. And then Mm. the third thing that I've been involved in a bit recently is the enhancement of professionals, so people like doctors, airline pilots, things like that, and um, how the availability of enhancement technologies might affect their professional duties or the expectations that we have of them in performing their duties and whether they could be liable um, for failing to enhance themselves.
0: Ah I actually am pretty interested in that side of things too. I think that's sort of the opposite pole um, than where where the conversation usually begins. Um, are there any of those of those three that uh, that you'd be interested in delving into maybe even the the student cognitive enhancement topic? I know it's been debated to an extent, but I don't think uh, as far as I'm you know as far as I've read anyway, not really that thoroughly from a philosophic standpoint?
1: Yeah, so. I mean, there are a few things. Uh, I'm happy to talk about that for a while. Cool. So, if, if you go back to maybe, I think, 2004, there was an article by a group of researchers in uh, one of the neuroscience journals. I can't remember. It's one of Nature of Neuroscience, I think. Uh, Martha Farah out of Pennsylvania. You possibly know her, in fact. You, you're a Penn graduate, aren't you?
0: Yes, this is the case.
1: Yeah. So, uh, she wrote a, uh, an article with a group of others. Um, Talking about the emerging uh, use of cognitive enhancement among students, and that you know, there's a pr- pressing need to uh, consider regulation in, in this area. And there are a few other people then who've looked, who've kind of similar, raised up alarms about the use of enhancement among students. So, uh, when I, I should probably back up and say, when I talk about enhancement among students, I'm talking about sp- uh, specific kinds of drugs. So, um, the use of methylphenidates, uh, Ritalin. Mm-hmm. And uh, modafinil, uh, it's uh, increasing use uh, of, of those drugs amongst students, particularly in elite U.S. universities. So there have been people concerned about this for a while. Now, I mean, one note of caution that should be sounded here is that people have been concerned about the use of cognitive, cognitive enhancing drugs amongst students for actually a very long time, and some friends and colleagues of mine based in Australia. Um, Brad Partridge, and Wayne Hall, and Jane Luck, they wrote an article a couple of years ago in um, A Job, or the American Journal of Bioethics and Neuroscience, or Neuroethics Edition, called Deflating the Neuro Enhancement Bubble, which pointed out you know, that there was a similar debate back in the 30s about the use of speed amongst students, and whether this was uh, should be regulated. And that, that bubble of excitement um, deflated over time, and that this latest concern about methylphenidate and, and modafinil is just another bubble that may, may not pan out into anything, so maybe we shouldn't get too upset or worried about it mm. at this moment in time. However, my interest is not so much in what the actual prevalence or usage of, of these drugs is, although that's obviously a, a background issue when I, when I look at the topic. It's more about the ethics of it and whether universities in particular should do anything to either encourage or discourage the use of, of cognitive enhancers. So it seems to me that a lot of people uh, look at this debate uh, purely in terms of like right. uh, traditional ethical categories mm-hmm. and debates. i am um, looking at it from a university standpoint. So the university is a, a regulatory community, if we use a somewhat technical term, insofar as universities Try to encourage and discourage different sorts of behaviors amongst their students. And the question is um, granting that it is a regulatory community, what kind of duties, ethical or otherwise, does it have with respect to its students and their use of of enhancement technologies or enhancing drugs? So I'd be happy to maybe go into some of the ethics of that in more detail if you'd like.
0: Certainly, yeah. And some of the other topics seem fascinating as well but I think this is a good one to kind of delve into and just, you know, poke a hole in a, a different uh, spectrum of modern human enhancement. So go at it.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, this is a part of a, a piece that I'm, I'm writing. I've been working on it for a while and for those who are interested a lot of the preliminary ideas were developed on my blog about a year ago maybe. And, you know, you can could, you could link to those and in the, the post that's associated with this uh, podcast. Yep. So I, I'm interested in drawing upon the analogy between sports and education. I don't... So that there, there's some similarity, perhaps, in the ethical issues between sports and education. The reason I do that is you know, twofold. One is that sports have been dealing with um, the issue of performance enhancement for a very long time, and that's generated very rich philosophical uh, literature on the ethics of performance enhancement. So I want to try and draw upon that, that literature to some extent. And the other reason is that even though you know uh, assessments in education may not be the same as competition in sport, there may be lots of differences between the two of them. I think exploring the analogy will be constructive in, in any regard, because you'll... You might learn something interesting about the ethical differences between the two enterprises, uh, which might alter your attitude towards performance enhancement. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, if you look at the, the literature on enhancement in sport, there are basically three types of arguments that are offered against performance enhancement. Uh, they are harm arguments, fairness arguments, and what a kind of a more ragtag group of arguments which we can group together under the heading of integrity or authenticity arguments.
0: Okay.
1: So if you look at harm arguments, the claim is that the use of performance-enhancing drugs is somehow harmful. Now, obviously harm and harmfulness, those are very vague, fuzzy terms, so what kinds of harms are we talking about? Well, people talk about uh, lots of different things. There's obviously the harm to the athletes themselves. Maybe the drugs are harmful to them physically, emotionally and personally harmful. There's also harm to the sport itself, or the harm to the spectators of the sport. They're setting a bad example for others that others copy, so that might be a kind of harm involved in in using performance enhancers. In fairness, arguments then are about, obviously, the competitive advantage that people gain over others. Uh, I don't know if you remember with the whole Lance Armstrong debate, one common refrain you get from people who would defend Lance Armstrong would be that, well, everyone else was using these drugs at the same time. Yep. So you know, he wasn't gaining any clear competitive advantage over people. But it is true that historically there have been times when certain kinds of enhancement technology have um, have afforded people a competitive advantage over over others. Obviously there's kind of an arms race mentality that sets in, and then everybody starts doing it and the yeah. advantage erodes away over time. And that might be one argument for actually having a more liberal policy towards the use of enhancement, uh, enhancing drugs, rather. So those are fairness arguments. The third uh, category of argument would be the authenticity or integrity arguments. And that's just... Uh, to capture the notion that the use of enhancement is somehow contrary to the spirit of sport. That maybe it gives people a a quick fix or an easy route to success, whereas sport is about uh, developing certain virtues, uh, you know, overcoming hardship, overcoming Ah. uh, some physical uh, boundaries that we uh, we otherwise have. And so there's something less worthy about the kinds of achievements that you get with the use of performance-enhancing drugs. So those are the three categories of arguments that are traditionally used in sport, and part of my interest is to see whether those arguments carry over to the educational context.
0: Yeah, I can see the crossover of all three, potentially. Um,
1: yeah. So I should say, just starting off, that it's not clear that any of those arguments work in in the case of sport. It's not clear that any of them would provide good grounds for um, denying people the use of performance enhancing drugs just to kind of review the, the case briefly it is true that if something is, is harmful there might be um, a case for saying we should, we should ban a particular drug or technology however sport has a very inconsistent attitude towards harm uh, yes. you know arduous and rigorous training programs can be harmful so uh, yet they are often encouraged and People often hold up those arduous and rigorous training programs as paragons of the kind of training that they like to see people undergo. When they critique the use of performance-enhancing drugs. Yep. Also, some sports are intrinsically harmful, or involve activities that are that are intrinsically harmful. You know, you said you yourself are an MMA fan.
0: Yeah, well, I, I actually run a mixed martial arts academy and, and a, an online business teaching uh, mixed martial arts and jiu-jitsu techniques to people all over the place. So I've been in so been in this stuff for a while.
1: You're more than a fan; you're an actual
0: yeah, com- a competitor. All, all that stuff. I've been in been in this world yeah. for the last eight years.
1: So I mean, it's not fair to say that it's intrinsically harmful, but you know, part of it is about um, inflicting a certain kind of harm or certainly dominance in, in you know in jujitsu. In jujitsu over another person. Oh, yeah, uh, and I boxing think maybe, might be a more a better example of something. Yeah, for that sure. It's intrinsically sure. harmful.
0: Yep. Okay. In- concussions.
1: So sport has an inconsistent attitude to harm, so it's not clear that harm arguments are always going to work in in sport. And when it comes to fairness arguments, I kind of foreshadowed this already, but if you're talking about um, avoiding a competitive advantage that people might have, you want to ensure a level playing field. Use a classic sporting metaphor here. Well, you can level up, or you can level down. You can either ban the use of these technologies, or you can encourage their use. I mean, both strategies will actually uh, ensure or achieve the goal of fairness. Yep. And I mean, there might even be good grounds for saying that you should liberalize the use of enhancements in order to encourage fairness. Maybe because other people are already using these drugs and will continue to, and also it might actually rectify an imbalance uh, or a disadvantage that you know, people from poorer nations have over competitors in sports from richer nations. You know, maybe. are you still there? Yeah, yeah. In what respect? Well, I mean, I guess that people in, let's say, the United States who have access to top-class trainers or um, top-class training facilities. They have an advantage over people in in poorer nations who have lower quality trainers and lower quality facilities. Yeah. And maybe, I mean, it's it's somewhat difficult because usually the use of enhancing drugs will require some kind of administration by an expert. But maybe the use of of enhancing drugs and technologies could um, correct for that imbalance, that unfairness between the richer and poorer competitors. So that that might be an argument against the, uh, or in favor of the use of Performance-enhancing drugs. And the third thing then, if you look at integrity arguments in um, the sporting context, the spirit of sport. What is the spirit of sport? Well, several people argue that the spirit of sport is to enhance performance. So Julian uh, Sabolescu and his colleague, I uh, can't remember his name, Foddy is the surname in a way, they wrote an article, I think, back in 2004, which argued this very point that whole purpose of sport is to enhance performance so the use of performance enhancers um, is facilitative or assists sport in achieving its, its goals or purposes and assists athletes in developing the kinds of virtues or qualities that we like to see amongst our sports people. And but, yeah, go yeah,
0: on. Yeah, no, I think this is very interesting. I kind of wanted to riff a little bit with you on it because I, I, can, I can certainly see that perspective as well. I'm, I'm not dogmatic on any side of the fence on that argument. Um, and, uh, and I think that the idea of enhancing, effort, you know, if everybody else is doing it, maybe if we allow for it, it'll sort of, you know, regulate it and even the field a little bit. And I think one potential result is that as more technologies develop and evolve, um, uh, athletes might begin to transition so far beyond the normal human extent of kind of performance that it would make sporting just sort of odd and, and, and almost absurd in some way. Like, uh, you know, if, 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 uh, we could replace all of our limbs prosthetically with massively strong and powerful ones, um, you know, would, would wrestling still even be viable? Um, maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. Um, and, or, or, you know, are there other sports that like maybe wouldn't even be sp- sports, you know, if we were to alter, if we were to enhance to the extent that maybe some emerging technologies might promise, um, you know, would sport even exist? You know, would we even still have hands to shoot basketballs, et cetera, et cetera? Um, So maybe some people are defending against, like, the slippery slope of, hey, if we allow for drugs, then we're going to allow for enhancement of any way, shape, form, part of any human, and that might take things too far. I mean, are people considering that as well?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, and that whole idea that you're you're touching upon there is... It's a prevalent part of my own arguments about the use of enhancement in, in education, but I mean, to one thing that you're suggesting there, the, the idea of sport would become very odd. Athletes uh, transition into a state of like post-human.
0: Yeah, po- post-human, post-human sports human would be a very, a very interesting endeavor.
1: Yeah, so there's a guy called Nicholas Agar, is based in, in New Zealand, who's made the argument that that kind of I don't know if he directly mentioned sport. I think he might have. It's been a while since I read his book, but. Um, the idea is that ordinary people would feel very alienated from from that kind of sporting activity if we assume that not everybody is going to uh, use these enhancement technologies. Yep. So it would become a much less enjoyable spectacle. People would be less inclined to um, watch sports. Mm-hmm. So that might be harmful to sport in some way.
0: Um, yeah, it, depending on the it, value kind of, that you put on it, I suppose.
1: Yeah, if, we, if you transition to that extent. I think it's also fair to say that, that technology could, as, as you point out, eradicate some kinds of sport in contest or activity. Yeah. To give the example of, you know, we'd be able to play basketball anymore. I mean, to use a much more mundane and genuine example, there has been a concern in, in golf about the use of technology and whether it's making the game um, unfeasible or infeasible nowadays. So one concern is that if people can hit the Ball, you know, three hundred and fifty, four hundred yards. There's a lack of real estate space for golf courses. (laughs) Okay, so so if people are able to hit the ball too far, golf becomes impractical.
0: Yeah, now now you need square miles and miles and miles to play eighteen holes. Yeah,
1: exactly. So, I mean, as far as I don't follow the, the debate that much in recent years, but you know, they have. Think got a professional ball now that doesn't spin or doesn't go as far as um, uh, some of the balls could do if they use the most up-to-date technology. And that's
0: a way of kind of reining in the professional game Yeah.
1: constricting it in a certain space so it continues to be a viable um, sport.
0: And they did that with baseball and, and aluminum bats, right? I mean, there's no aluminum bats in the, in the Major League Baseball. I mean, you're playing with wood.
1: So, uh, unfortunately, baseball is a bit of a
0: a black hole to me, and I'm afraid. I yeah, me, 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 uh, me too. Believe it or not, as much of uh, an American as I might be, I probably eat fewer hot dogs and maybe even watch fewer baseball games than you. But, uh, but
1: yeah. So sure, that's. Um, but I, I, I take your point. That,
0: oh yeah, yeah, it's similar. I imagine there's there's that in a number of sports. I mean, even football. Anywhere where there's technology involved, that that could take it to the point where it's almost you know, you can see how maybe certain padding or helmets in football, I, I don't know, but it's very clear, I think, in, in golf, which was the first example you used, because, I mean, that's that's the tool of the sport. And I, I suppose if that gets enhanced past a certain point, maybe we need a different sport, or maybe it's something different. So maybe there are limitations we should put on the, the technologies of the tools we use. You know, I imagine in hockey, there's some limits about um, what you're allowed to use for your, you know, your stick or your, your skates. There's certain safety rules or things about you know, how hard the thing is. Or I, I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm sure there's regulations. Um, and I, I think maybe some of those same concerns, um, analogously, might move over to our enhancement of ourselves.
1: Yeah, I, I think that they possibly do. I mean, just to kind of dwell on the sport uh, example for a moment. Uh, I mean, there, I think there's an interesting argument here. I think you just mentioned there that um, there's the idea that you actually stop you stop participating in the sport that we started out with, or you're yeah. doing something other than that. I think that's clearly true. If, if you think about, this might be an intuitive exa- example, swimming, okay, you know, we had these swimsuits that were controversial a few years ago and eventually were banned. Um, did they, were they resulting in people performing a different kind of activity than we actually wanted them to perform when they, they swam? Maybe, maybe not, but let's say if we started allowing uh, competitive swimmers to use flippers, you know, kind of foot enhancements of the sort, <laughs> would that undermine the sport? Would that mean we're actually participating in a different kind of sport altogether? Um, possibly, what if we allowed them to use like mini jetpacks to propel themselves through the water? Well, clearly, I think that most people would say that's absurd because well, you know, that's not the purpose of the sport. <laughs> so the purpose is not just to get from one end of the pool to, uh, to the other in the fastest possible time or do several laps of the pool in the fastest possible time. The purpose is something else. It's to actually get from one end of the pool to the other in a particular kind of way.
0: And, and I, I think that's, that's pretty interesting because, you know, the purpose of the sport, quote-unquote, I think that that's a very, very amorphous idea, um, I think you, if you were to talk to 50 guys who've won gold medals in the Olympics in swimming, I bet you'd get some pretty darn different opinions on what the purpose of swimming and purpose of sport is. And I think that you know coming up with a consensus there is very, very difficult. It's interesting that to consider racing cars. I know there's some limits there, but really there, it is about how quickly can you get around the track. While in swimming, it seems like maybe some people would value, well, it's about pedaling your feet. To see how far you can get around, so it's it's interesting to see how those could spin around there.
1: Yeah, I mean it's definitely going to be fuzzy. That's always going to be the case, but I I think there are going to be paradigmatic instances of of the use of technology that seem to go beyond the sport. Yes, and other that are maybe fuzzier. Like I think flippers is maybe a fuzzy example. I'm not sure um, whether that violates the kind of spirit or purpose of the sport. Uh, I should add as well that like spirit or purpose might not be the the best term to use
0: here. I, yeah, I get what you're picking up, though. I, I see where you're
1: going. So, I mean, uh, if, if you like to, to kind of skip ahead to the conclusion, I think this the ideas that we're, we're batting around here um, can provide the basis of an interesting argument that applies in the sporting context, but also uh, maybe more interestingly in the educational context. Big time. Uh, so, to, to understand it, you've got to distinguish between uh, the role that rules play in sport, or the Not necessarily rules either, but um, principles of the sport as well. So there are two two kinds of rules that are discussed in in the philosophy of rules. There's things called regulative rules and constitutive rules. So a regulative rule is something that takes an activity that uh, is intelligible or makes sense independent of the rules and then tells you how to perform that activity in a normatively, morally, ethically, socially desirable way. Got it. So if you imagine driving, driving is an activity that's intelligible without any rules in place, but the rules of the road they tell us how to drive safely, okay, within socially acceptable limits. All right, I'm not right. talking about the rules of, of racing either here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So those are so uh, driving is governed by regulative rules, it regulates that activity. Constitutive rules are slightly different in that the rules actually define the activity itself. They tell you what that activity is. So chess is a classic example of a a game, which is governed by constitutive rules. You know, you're not playing chess unless you actually follow the rules of chess and um, move the pieces in the appropriate way and um, perform, or you know, achieve the, the end point of checkmate, which is defined in accordance with the rules. Like, the game is over once your opponent is in checkmate. Yes. If you if you just start uh, moving carved wooden pieces across the board randomly, uh, you're not playing chess anymore. So without the rules, the whole activity of chess doesn't exist. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, certainly, and that's, that's why... I, uh find it difficult to play chess against my young nieces because I, I find that it's very much not like chess.
1: Yeah, that's that's always the sometimes frustrating thing about playing certain board games with, with young children. They, don't, <laughs> they haven't quite grasped the activity. Yeah. I, I should say as well there are um, kind of variations on chess as well where you, you know, I think there's a version where you don't play with the rook. So there are variations on the traditional game. Yeah, there's, so there's many, is, yep. In poker, there's a variation of the traditional game, like Texas Hold'em, that's slightly sort of different from classic uh, five-card stud, five-car stud.
0: Just like swimming, right? Butterfly, backstroke, all that.
1: Yeah, exactly. So this is kind of getting back to my point. But you know, sport, a lot of athletic sports anyway, uh, and team sports, they're they're constituted by rules. You know, um, soccer or is defined by a particular set of rules, and if you you start picking up the ball with your hands mm-hmm. and um, passing it with your hands, you're not playing soccer anymore. You might be playing something closer to rugby or um, American football, but you're not playing soccer. Yeah. So but the activity itself is defined by the rules. So I think if you if you have this idea that um, the activity is only intelligible in light of the rules, there are ways in which certain kinds of enhancement technology should be banned in certain kinds of sports.
0: Ah, okay, now, yeah.
1: So, like my example, again, to go back to swimming, I think jetpacks should be banned in swimming because I think swimming the freestyle is about a particular stroke, a particular way of moving your arms and your hands. And If you start using a, a jetpack, you're not performing that activity anymore. So if you want to be a freestyle swimmer, you can't use a motorized jetpack.
0: Yeah, just like... Easy. If you were doing a foot race and you are on a motorcycle, they have a different sport for that, and it's called racing yeah. motorcycles.
1: Exactly. So exactly, you could you, it could be a whole other game that we're playing.
0: Exactly. Know, oh yeah, very very easily. But
1: within the old game, doesn't be work. Bad,
0: yep.
1: And that means there's going to be a lot of really. That means going to be difficult fuzzy cases. So if I'm running the hundred meter sprint and I start rollerblading down the track, I'm not participating in hundred meter sprint anymore. I'm not. Performing the activity that is constituted by the rules of the sport. Yep. What happens if I have um, artificial limbs, blades, like Oscar Pistorius uh, ah. had did? I suspect he won't be participating in the sport much anymore. But um, where does that where does that fall on the dividing line? Is he is he doing something other than the activity that we want, or we that yeah. is constituted by the rules, or not? I think Oscar Pistorius is a, is a fuzzy case, to be honest. Um, mm. Yeah. And he's probably right on right on that borderline between... Well, not exactly on the borderline. But he's, on the, he's somewhere between running it in the traditional way and um, it rotor-blading down the track. It's, it's somewhere between the two.
0: Yeah, yeah I would and say where, that's a fuzzier
1: example. Yeah, it's a fuzzier example. and that, I mean, that kind of leads to the point that, you know, a lot of the constitutive rules of a sport are a little bit fuzzy themselves. Like what we think the activity that we've constituted by the rules is, is not always immediately clear to us. And there are often anomalies that emerge. And in the philosophy of sport, there's a whole uh, discussion of the notion of spoiling a game. The spoiling is distinct from breaking the rules, but it seems uh-huh. to violate the um,
0: the integrity the side of things.
1: Yeah, the constitutive end or goal that, that that sport was set up for. Yeah. I'll, I'll use an example here just to. Uh, illustrate my point, and um, I, I don't know. I don't want to slander or libel anybody when I say this. Oh no, it's fine. So I'm not sure if this is uh, true, <laughs> but um, it's a story that you can find on the internet. I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy called Tim Ferriss. I have, yes. He wrote a book called uh, Four Hour Workweek, and he has this whole four hour series of, um, of books. So there's a story about him that, for a while, he was advertising himself. You saw him in interviews as the 1999 uh, US kickboxing champion.
0: Ah, uh, yes, and I remember that.
1: He explained that he won the kickboxing championship by, uh, I think, uh, dehydrating himself to get to a certain weight category. I mean, boxers actually do this frequently as well, so this is in itself dodgy. So he dehydrated himself to get into a lower weight category and then dehydrated himself just before the fight. Mm-hmm. Um, So he could fight against smaller people, for a start. Yep. And then he exploited um, a loophole in the rules, an anomaly, that said that you could win just by pushing people out of the ring, rather than attempting to fight them at all. So because he was bigger and bulkier than the uh, smaller competitors, he was able to push them out of the ring all the time, without having having a minimal knowledge, as far as I understand, of how to actually engage in, in traditional kickboxing. So what he did was technically um, in accordance with the rules, but I think a lot of people would say there's something he, he maybe he spoiled the, the competition. He was he was doing something other than what we what that sport was constituted to to um, be, if you like.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I, but and I think I...
1: boxing is about at least trying to kick and box another person.
0: <laughs> Kickboxing. Kickboxing is about trying to kick or box another tri pro- I think you're yeah you're pretty safe in that assumption.
1: Yeah. So even if the rules didn't stipulate that what he did was wrong, after the fact we say, oh, we, we should really cover that loophole because that's not what we want people to be doing in this sport. Yeah. It's not the kind of activity that is constituted by the sport.
0: And interestingly enough, what me I mean that practice of dehydration and rehydration is so popular in sports like wrestling it's you know banal I mean it's just so boringly popular I mean everybody does I mean that's what you do you cut weight Um, but in in that I think it was Chinese kickboxing actually Um, I I don't think it was popular at all uh, or practiced at all and I think that that you know, which, which elements, because nobody else cuts weight, was cutting weight spoiling, or was it more the pushing out of balance thing, or was it kind of the, the devious combination of the two? That's sort of an interesting uh, conundrum in and of itself, there, a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, my feeling is that it, it's predominantly the pushing people out of the ring, but the devious combination of that with the dehydration and dehydration uh, makes it even more um, unsalubrious in activity, if you like. Part.
0: That was a great word. I have to go get a dictionary now.
1: I'm not even sure if it is a word, I have to be honest. Well, salubrious is definitely a word. But- I'm not
0: sure what the negative level Well, I, I like it either way. Um, so, okay, cool. So, all right, so there's that notion of spoiling the game. Because I know we're, we're going a little bit over, which isn't a big deal for me, but let me know if you if you got to, uh, if you got to scram or anything here. Um,
1: uh, I probably have to head around in half an hour of my time. So.
0: Okay, okay, cool. So that will give us enough time to sort of round out. Um, I have one last question for you, but before we, we dig there, I, I – uh, I really like the exploration of this notion of rules as well as kind of the idea of spoiling, which is, is curious because I think you're right. You don't hear that outside of, um, you know, sport and games. How how do you see a lot of these, um, you know, these deeper philosophical trenches kind of applying uh, to the fields of education, so to speak? Or what, what are the interesting analogies that you've explored that you think might have ramifications?
1: Yeah, so I should say, I mean, I explore fairness and harm arguments in education as well, but I think this, this kind of constitutive rule argument is the most interesting. I do think that the, the process of being assessed educationally is an activity that's governed by some kinds of constitutive rule. because The formal property of a, of a constitutive rule is that it says that one kind of activity counts as something else. So within the university environment, you know, uh, writing a an essay or a term paper submitting it and having it marked, that all those activities count as as the part of being educationally assessed, or sitting in an exam hall and writing an answer uh, to a a timed exam paper, that's part of being educationally assessed, or delivering an oral presentation. They're all part of being uh, educationally assessed. I think it's clear that there are certain kind of activities that people could perform that would violate the constitutive rules of educational assessment. So they're very clear-cut and obvious examples here, um, which we could appeal to, but to use the, the simplest one, there's been a trend in recent years where students to sometimes use online educational, or sorry, online essay meals. The people, they can hire somebody to write an essay for them. Ah. And in fact, in, in Keele University this past year, uh, there were people on campus advertising this service, and the university got very upset and angry about it. Wow. And, I think rightly so, because if somebody buys an essay and submits it as their own work, they're not developing the kind of characteristics or habits of mind that we want them to develop in order for them to be properly educationally assessed.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly.
1: Educational assessment is, is a judgment about the abilities of a particular person. So if you submit somebody else's work, um it's, not, it's no longer going to be a judgment of your own abilities. Okay. Uh, in particular, I think like, one of the goals of education is to develop critical thinking skills among students and clearly critical, critical thinking means that you have to look at arguments, evaluate uh, propositions or arguments advanced by others, come to your own conclusions about it, an issue. And if you are buying the essay from somebody else, you're not performing any of those activities. You're bypassing them all. So I think you could you could say that you could fairly say that buying the essay violates the constitutive rules of education. Are you okay there? You?
0: Oh, yes, yeah, certainly, certainly. Yeah, they've just got some creaky doors. But yes, I, I think that that's pretty clear in terms of the constituent rules you had outlined. Yes,
1: yeah, so that's a clear example. But then the question is, where, does, um, where do cognitive-enhancing drugs fall within this next... And I think it's it's pretty clear that you have, to, you have to keep two worlds distinct here. And this goes back to maybe one of your opening points. When people discuss enhancement, they talk about an in-fact world you know, where we actually have particular kinds of drugs that people use and that have certain effects that have been studied, so things like methyl, and modafinil, versus an in-principle world. A lot of ethicists and philosophers argue about well, imagine if we had enhancing drugs that did the following. What would happen then? OK? Uh, so yes. if we really did have cognitive enhancing drugs that improved memory, concentration, and other cognitive abilities, I would probably argue that they're fine. That they are within the constitutive rules of education. Mm. Because they assist you in developing the kinds of skills and attributes that we want you to develop um, uh. as part of this process of educational assessment.
0: Maybe like coffee to a lesser extent.
1: Yeah, coffee would be a classic example to a lesser extent. But if we look at the the kinds of drugs we actually have and the way in which they're typically used by students, I think the picture is much less clear-cut. The evidence that I've I've seen is that actually the enhancing power of some of these drugs is rather overstated, particularly methylphenidate. So um, there's a friend of mine, I don't know if, I mean, calling him a friend is probably a bit uh, pushing it, but somebody I've certainly met and spoke to, uh, Rapantis, Repantis, he's based in, in Berlin, he's published several uh, meta-analyses of the use of different kinds of cognitive-enhancing drug, and he's found minimal effect for methylphenidate and some minor effect for modafinil, but it, it's nothing dramatic. Yeah, yeah. And it seems to be that people really just use these drugs to try and fuel extended uh, cramming sessions, all-night study sessions. So, so they use them, arguably, in you know, a in a counterproductive way, and they use them as effectively as procrastination aids. So they keep putting off uh. studying and doing the work they need to do because um, you know they can they can correct for that at the end by having these. Uh, long cramming
0: sessions huh, and that's that's very curious John because it would seem as though you know I, I can see where your initial argument was um, where you know if drugs are being leveraged in order to further cultivate and extend the reaches of the kind of characteristics abilities uh, capacities that we're looking to develop in students as assessors as uh, communities whatever um, that that shouldn't in and of itself necessarily be looked down upon it doesn't seem anyway um, but but then again again i can see where you're coming from now we're okay so in, in the, from that standpoint it doesn't seem as such however they're being very habitually and seemingly predictably used in another light um in a way that seems to be enhancing bad behaviors should we limit them because people are messing up how they should be used or should we limit them only if they are in and of themselves a bad thing i'm sure there's an analogy there maybe even with golf clubs i mean you know if we had great putters you know if I don't know if, for some odd reason, you know, people thought that you know, people were being lazier with their five irons because they could putt from twenty yards farther and didn't really care as much. Um, you know, is that is that maybe a, a reason not to use that kind of putter when initially, you know, the technology doesn't necessarily break rules? I think that that's sort of an interesting uh, dynamic.
1: Yeah. So I mean, that's sort of the direction I'm going with in this paper that I'm writing. That um, again, bearing in mind. How these things are actually used or seem to be used in practice. And I, I should add that there could be uh, individuals who use them in very productive ways. It's, it's quite possible. Oh, certainly. Yeah. That, that's an issue to factor in here. But um, the studies done on the prevalence and use by people like uh, Christian Teeter, uh, he does studies of the use of um, um, all kinds of drugs and, uh, amongst college students. It's his special area, the specialist area. He, he would suggest that it's being used by weaker students to fuel these kind of cramming sessions hmm. in a sort of very counterproductive way. And I think if, if that's the prevalent or predominant use of these cognitive-enhancing drugs that we currently have, there might be a case for, a very, a very weak case, I have to say, and I, I did go into this in the paper, uh, to regulate them in a in- sort of way. And the only kind of regulation that I, I really suggest or advance seriously is uh, that I mean, assuming, and I'm not sure if this is possible, assuming you can test for the usage of these drugs, uh, students should be voluntarily um, encouraged, to. so there's no coercion. You can you can use these drugs if you like, but they should be encouraged to enter into commitment contracts at the start of their education. And if they're found to have used um, cognitive-enhancing drugs, they can incur certain penalties, and not necessarily anything too severe, but kind of the reverse... Of the sort of advantages that we give to disabled students at the moment in university, hmm. so they might get shorter time for exams or to submit a paper if they've been found using these drugs. Oh. Something along those lines, anyway. So that's the suggestion I've, I've come up
0: with. Yeah, we wonder if, uh, if if that would require a little bit more cramming if they had less time.
1: Yeah, I mean maybe that's it. A... Maybe it's counterproductive. Outcomes.
0: Yeah, I think it could go both ways, and I see where you're yeah. where you're leaning with that. Um, and I'm glad we were able to kind of explore both sides of that analogy. I know we could be in I – could, I could probably talk about that one in and of itself for hours and hours just because I think there's so much there, especially with the sport analogy. And I think it's interesting how much more rich that literature is than, than the same in education. But, I, I uh, you know, there's folks like yourself, I suppose, uh, trailblazing in ed as well, which seems pretty darn meaningful. Um, I did want to ask as a, a last question here, and something I ping off of. Uh, the majority of the thinkers I'm lucky enough to be able to catch up with, um, which which really has to do with sort of as as thinkers in the space of whether it's enhancement ethics, um, a lot of your work I know has something to do with human enhancement or emerging technologies potentially, though not all of it. Um, I've spoken with people that are more inventors or business people in the tech world, other people uh, working on research in biotech or uh, businesses in biotech. Maybe they're just thinkers and authors. Um, presumably the leveraging of these technologies in the future is going to bring about a whole vast array of, of ethical issues and possibilities um, and and again presumably we're we're all aiming to influence the world our societies in a way that's going to be aggregately good so bringing up these matters in education i can see how you know, I don't know if I'm not you, so I can't say. You know, John uh, Danaher is driven by the most altruistic. You know, but I can assume. You know, in in your heart, there's a certain motive of, you know, aiming to make things a little bit better, bring some important conversations to allow us to think more clearly about important issues but there's always going to be conflicting interests of course you know whether it's human enhancement, um, you know these, these matter these considerations of drugs that maybe the development thereof, the regulation thereof, the allowed usage thereof, all those matters are going to have well-intending people um, on both sides of the coin and that goes for robotics, AI, everything. What do you think that we can do as researchers, business people, thinkers, people spreading these ideas, um, to be able to, despite our differences, aggregately move forward towards uh, a future that's that's better for all of us, or, or get our best swing, anyway, at a future that's uh, better for
1: all of us. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm somewhat optimistic about the future. Maybe that's just a congenital defect, I don't know. <laughs>
0: um,
1: but but I, I think we're beginning to do the right kinds of things. So certainly and this is the impression I get from older academics and scholars, the, the academic and research community has become much more interdisciplinary uh, in the past 20 or 30 years. And, and Arguably, it's a bit of a fad. But, uh, for example, any conferences I've participated in on cognitive enhancement have always featured people from diverse backgrounds, people from psychology, from neuroscience, uh, You know, people who are actually developing the technologies and um, seeing how they work and philosophers, lawyers. So there is a trend for that cross-disciplinary conversation. And there has also been, I think this is productive, uh, a lot of anticipation of potential trends, particularly if you look at bioethics. Now, one criticism you could have of of how bioethics has um, trended over the past 20 years is that there's an anticipation of technologies that aren't yet in existence So there's a lot of debate about things that may never happen or may not happen for a long time. Debates about uh, genetic engineering and cloning and uh, a lot of the enhancement debate is of this character as well. But I think it's good that there's a lot of groundwork being laid now to uh, consider the ethical and regulatory issues that we should confront when these technologies become become live, become available. Um, And I think the internet you know, uh, organizations like the IWT forums, such as what you're providing in your blog, in your podcast, which hopefully becomes more uh, widely known, these things could, uh, can improve uh, the foundation or the background against which technology has continued to develop.
0: So so you're sort of a believer in in just being able to provide a uh, just richer aggregate conversation and deeper thought about these ramifications so that we can maybe find some common language or some common discernments about goods and bads and applications thereof?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's possibly a little bit naive and optimistic. One area that does, does concern me a bit more is actually the development of Um, advanced artificial intelligence technologies. That seems to me an area that is quite prone to the technology actually running away from the regulatory and ethical conversation. Uh, I mean, it it struck me in in recent years that um, there are people working on regulation and ethics of of, of robotics, but maybe the, the technology has actually gone beyond where we and appreciated, it was maybe ten or fifteen years ago with the advance of robotic robotic cars and drone technology and things like that. So that maybe that's one area of, of concern. But I'm on the biotech side of things, human enhancement and uh, genetic engineering. I'm a little bit more optimistic. Okay, cool.
0: And I, I believe as well that term interdisciplinary has been used by so many of the people I've interviewed. And I'm, I'm glad that I, I suppose it's been being thrown around. That's really why I aim for as diverse a group of experts as, as I aim to, to bring on the show here is for a similar reason. I think that and the, more, the more perspectives we have, the better. And if we can still maintain some semblance of unity, some semblance of a common understanding of positive intention, And moving forward while being open to the expertise of others, I think that that's going to be critical um, across nations, boundaries, industries, et cetera, in order to build anything um, that we can kind of, you know, cohesively feel feel decent about, at least make our best swing at at a good future. Yeah, sure. Cool. Fantastic. Well, John, thank you again very much for being able to take the time for the interview. Again, I've read your stuff for quite some time now, so it's great to be able to catch up. As soon as I've wrapped up with the article, I'll make sure I connect it to you first, and otherwise I'll look forward to catching up.
1: Yeah, okay.
0: Sounds great. Great. Thanks, John. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker, Uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential. then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, If you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience... And be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, More than anything else, always feel free to reach out. If you can find us via email, um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Uh, So with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting edge emerging technology. Uh, If you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, And be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, More than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, You can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Uh, So with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week.